Thanks for joining me for my latest installment of the Ingle Angle podcast. I am award-winning columnist from the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, Mac Ingle. Two things. If you've listened or watched these in the past, you've noticed I kind of play around with the format. Uh, I got some feedback from an audience member who told me they enjoyed some of the editorializing that I had done in the past, but I dropped them for whatever reason. So I'm going to bring them back. I follow the ethos of my hero, Indiana Jones, who said famously, I don't know, I'm making this up as I go along. Now, you might have missed the other part in that intro where I went out of way to pat myself on the back when I said I am an award-winning columnist. Here's the reality about existing and working in today's world, especially in media. You have to tell people when you win an award. You have to tell people how great you are because you have to be your own PR man and marketing team because if you're not, there's a good chance you won't get recognized. So I was actually recently named by the Associated Press as one of the top 10 sports columnists in the United States. I'm not sure where I rank. That'll be determined later, later this year. I'm gonna look really dumb if I'm like 10th. This is after the, I was named the best sports columnist in Texas in each uh, of the last two years. Now, there is this part of me that I really want to go out of my way to tell people how the judging process works in these awards. I, I know how they work, but don't be that guy. There is a way to sit there and say, I did good without being an arrogant ass, I think. I'm trying to find it. It's hard for me because I was raised in a house by Depression-era parents who, for a variety of reasons, we didn't celebrate anything. <laughs> we just didn't. Uh, we need to find that middle ground between generations that refuse to celebrate anything other than winning an Academy Award or a wedding to the generation that throws parties for everything up to and including the gender of a baby, weddings, divorces, third grade graduations, and buying your second car. Here's the part I do finally get. Man, life is just too short to bypass, downplay, and minimize those moments when you did good. Embrace those. Don't be like me and ignore them. So I know how the process works when it comes to these awards. Don't bore anybody with those details because they don't care. If you're going to be your own self-promoter, lean into the good days. Life is going to give you plenty of bad days that aren't worth celebrating. So when a legit good one comes around and you win an award, party on. Speaking of worth celebrating, my guest for this episode has created for himself such an impressive career entirely on his own. Anytime someone is self-made, even if you don't even understand what they do, give it up. My guest started working on cars when he was a young teenager in Fort Worth, Texas. He took that interest of car in cars, combined it with an innate flair for marketing and branding, and he has generated a unique name in the world of cars and reality TV. That's hard. Even if you don't know the TV show Fast and Loud, you probably know the name Gas Monkey Garage. Gas Monkey Garage is well-known sponsor in motorsports, including NASCAR and now NHRA. It's also a bar restaurant and again will be a part of the live music scene. Gas Monkey Garage was the TV show behind the successful TV Discovery TV show Fast and Loud. And the guy who started it all calls himself a serial entrepreneur. Please welcome 
Mr. Richard Rawlings. I know you're a race fan. Did you grow up uh, an open wheel racing fan? Uh, I've grown up watching races my whole life, but, you know, I grew up here, so, um, in Dallas, but somebody along the way, I almost think that the Indiana Speedway gave me that, like, out of their offices or something. No, that's pretty cool. Because I ran, uh, I had a car in the 100th anniversary of uh, the Indianapolis uh, 500. So, I want you to take me back to your freshman year at Eastern Hills High School here in Fort Worth. So, you're 14 or 15 years old. And now that you're older, you can look back and probably figure things out. But when you look back on that year, what path were you on to becoming? Because I can't imagine it was this. Well, all through uh, middle school and high school, I was buying and selling cars and motorcycles. Um, because from the time I was seven till I was 17, to make ends meet, my family had a uh, uh, paper route. We threw the Star Telegram and the Dallas Morning News. And back then, you didn't have these kind of things. So uh, on the weekends, I'd have to ride my bike and go collect the two or three dollars, you know, uh, for the newspaper for the month. And uh, so I was knew where all the cars was. I'd pull up the guy's house and be like, hey, what about that Mustang in the backyard? And he'd be like, what do you know about my backyard? I'm like, dude, I drive your street twice a day. <laughs> you know, I know where all the cars are. But, uh, you know, really, my dad worked really, really hard. Uh, usually had two or three different jobs at a time. Um, and, uh, always told me not to work like that. He didn't want me to, he said, get a good job. So what I thought was a good job of good benefits, I wanted to be a cop. So, um, I went straight out of high school into the police academy almost. I mean, give or take a few months. I was a police officer, firefighter, and medic before I was old enough to drink. How old were you when you first started driving a car, Richard? Probably 13. Did you ever get busted? Um, no, not really. Um, I wrecked a couple of times. I wrecked my grandmother's Monte Carlo and ran home with the car, and, and she went back with me and said it was her. <laughs> <laughs> so you never really got it. Was she mad at you at all, or she knew you were driving? Uh, she knew. She'd let me take it and gas it up or go wash it or whatever. So if you were going to be a cop or a paramedic or a firefighter, then I read that you owned a printing press. Uh, yeah. Um, after I left the fire department here in Coppell, uh, I was where I spent most of my tenure. I was there about five years. And um, I didn't know what I was going to do. I actually went out uh, to the West. Uh, I bought a new Jeep and went out West and uh, uh, kind of found myself. I'd always been clean cut and what have you. I came back with pierced ears and tattoos and long hair and you know, uh, what have you, but I was broke as hell. I needed to get a job. So I stumbled into printing sales as a print broker. And that led to me, um, quickly becoming like the CEO of a, of a printing company here in Dallas. And then that part laid into me buying some companies, combining them all together and making my own, uh, large scale printing. Firm. So when you say you're broke as hell, Broke as hell means different things to different people. What is your definition of broke as hell? Living in a car? I was sleeping on my sister's couch and uh, my car, my Jeep had been repoed. <laughs> and That's I had, broke as hell. I had no money, like none. I, I mean, I, I spent my 401 savings. I spent my, my regular money. I, everything I had, I'd sold to go out west. And and uh, so I literally had like, you know, uh, an orange box full of clothes. And that was about it. 
So how do you transition from owning a printing press? And I would imagine you were doing all right. You're probably oh, crushing it. You're crushing by, it. by then I was making, you know, north of 500000 a year. So why, why leave the security of that venture? Which, I mean, thank God you did, given the way the industry's changed in the last 20 years. But why go from the security of that venture to customizing old cars, which looks to be less than stable? Well, because I wanted to build a brand. I, I was in printing and advertising. So I had in-house artists and things, and I built brands for other people, you know, whether it be redesigning their logos and things like that. But I was building their companies and helping them, you know, tell their story to the public. So it was just a natural progression that I do it for myself. Uh, and, you know, I didn't go into Gas Monkey Garage thinking I'm going to fix up cars and, and, and make money. I went into Gas Monkey Garage to build a worldwide brand with, uh, you know, different verticals, albeit, you know, food and restaurants and live music venues and uh, television show was number one on the list. You know, I had to get a show to be able to have the, the reach that I wanted to get. So I filmed all my own sizzle reels and shot all my own stuff and went to Hollywood and pitched it for eight years. You know, got told no a lot of times, got told yes a few times, and then it fell through the cracks. Uh, and then finally got the, the TV show uh, landed in 2012. Where did, at any point in that, because you hear stories about this, famous stories about TV ventures, book ventures that were first met with no 20 times, 30 times. I mean, obviously, the Dr. Seuss story, that's, that's as famous as there comes, right? What prompted you to say, no, I have a winning product here to keep knocking on doors to eventually to see this thing through? Because enough no's, I think, would deject and make anybody stop. But it obviously didn't you. Uh, no, I mean, basically, um, what happened was I was being told no, but the same, the reason that I even decided to do it in automotive and motorcycle was because I was watching the shows that were on uh, cable at the time. And my wife and my kid at the time were not watching with me. And I was like, why do y'all not like this? And she was very adamant that this is, it's very bravado and they cuss and they kick boxes and they just try to act tough and bandanas down to here and pit bulls on chains. And, and I was like, you know, you're right. I said, when I was a kid, you know, my dad and his friends are playing with the cars and the kids are playing in the yard and mom's making potato salad and, you know, it's more family than 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 what they're portraying on TV with just this tough guy attitude. So I did some studying and realized that they were missing the mark while they were selling shirts at Walmart and Target, just like we do. They weren't selling them to ladies, and the guys could wear them around their their family because they were sometimes vulgar or sometimes too much bravado. So while they had a good following, it wasn't the family type following that I, I mean, I'm still tattooed and got jewelry and all that crap. I'm just not an asshole, you know? So, you know, uh, we, I, that's what I was pitching and, and, and building and, and also building the brand, you know, I, those guys, uh, did great. Uh, there's some of them are my friends, you know, but they, they, to me, they were missing the market with building a brand that was family friendly and still had a little edge, had that cool factor you know, uh, you know, kind of like, you know, the Fonz, I guess, on Happy Days. You know, he was tough and he was cool, you know, but he wasn't an a-hole, you know. So it, it, that's kind of how we went about building the brand. But 
from the very beginning, it was to build a brand that sold more shirts and and product than any of the brands that were there at the time. So you know how important it is to have a good, now more than ever, a good hook, a good name, something that people remember. Gas Monkey is a great name. Even if you have, even if you have no interest in cars, even if you have no interest in tough guy lifestyle, however you want to phrase it, Gas Monkey is a great name that will stick in people's memory bank, which is hard these days. Where'd you come up with Gas Monkey? And for that matter, how about get you some of this? I mean, we're, those are great. Those are great. How'd you come up with them? You know, they were just sayings along the way. Gas Monkey came from in my print shop because print shops are supposed to be very clean environments. You can't have dust and everything like that. So over on the side of my print shop, I had kind of my little garage area where I had my cars and motorcycles and stuff. And we would draw ideas on this one big wall and just scribble on it and graffiti it up. And one day that name just kind of came together and there was gas and there was monkey. And I was like, there you go. That's it. You know? And, uh, so that's where, where it came from. And, uh, we, uh, we launched it pretty much right around then. When you started doing the TV show fast and loud for discovery, that was all a long time and that's not easy. How long did it take before you thought, that's what I wanted to do? Because I, I can't imagine it was the first episode. No, 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 not at all. As a matter of fact, I almost turned it down when they finally came around and said yes. I had kind of put it to the back burner, and I was running uh, another company with my wife at the time, uh, a home health care company. And doing a lot. Uh, and that company was growing leaps and bounds. Life was good. Um, I had, uh, you know, sold my printing company way before that. And I was like, man, I don't know. I don't know if I want to do it. And uh, she's like, you have to. You know, if you don't, you'll always wonder. And I said, yeah, but I got to put everything in. I got to go full bore all the way. And I said, because they're only giving me six episodes. And if I don't make that was it. That's all they ordered the first time. Wow, and I said if they don't, if I don't make them badass, and they weren't giving me any kind of money. Uh, when you start in this business, you don't really get much. They, they, you have to, you have to stick out. I think they were giving me like two thousand dollars an episode or something. No, that's it. So everything you had to do, you're basically covering the costs. Yeah, they give me a few dollars, or there would be people that would donate costs to the product or products to the car. But no, I had to cover everything, and uh, including the other guy's salaries. I, I was the only one getting paid. So, um, and it took everything. It wasn't like we were doing the TV show and making money over here. When the TV show rolled in, it was like a uh, it was like a wrecking ball. It, they took every available time and wanted the show in what I considered at the time impossible. They they needed a, a new car built every thirty days uh, from start to finish, which is freaking humping it. Uh, we got it down pat by, you know, by episode, you know, 40 or 50, where we were doing it in 22, 23 days. But at the beginning, they gave me six episodes. And by the end of those six, I had spent everything I had again to make this thing work. Uh, I mean, several hundred thousands of dollars and savings and what have you. And, you know, luckily enough, my wife allowed, at the time allowed me to do it. And I went, I went for it. I went for broke. I was like, I'm going to throw everything at it, and it's it's going to work or it's going to fail. 
So when you got the phone call and they said, Richard, we like it, we want to renew this or extend it, how, whatever the phrasing was that they did use, is it relief? Like, oh, thank God. Or is it excitement because you know what potentially could be on the other side of this? It was more like fear because this show was costing me money. It, it, I was not making money on the show. They ordered the six. By the time they saw the first three, before they aired anything, before it had even been on TV, they ordered 12 more. And then, you know, after the first season aired, they ordered 24 more. And that part of them in my life was fear because I was losing every episode. Every single episode, I was losing my ass trying to make the show good because they didn't know what they were doing. They didn't know what a car does or how to build one or what it is. They don't really even care. Right. Been making, you know, woodpeckers out of wood and they don't care. Um, they just want their show and they don't care if you win or lose either. They have no desire, uh, no they don't have any desire for you to win or lose. They don't freaking care. But if you start winning, then they're going to sink their teeth in. And uh, so that's what kind of happened. But it, you know, back to your original question, it took till probably episode 50 or 60 before I really was like, okay, even though I'm losing money, this is going to work. Let's open the restaurant. Let's do the book deal. Let's get some, you know, I was starting to get some commercial deals and in what they call it influencer now but you know uh commercial spots and things so it took a while when in that process sixth episode second year whenever when you're walking down the street richard or you're at a restaurant or you're at a bar someplace and somebody comes up to you and says man i love your show when you thought there was an, a real you knew there was a real audience for this thing was it earlier did it was it one of those aha moments that was kind of far the first season, you know, first season being the local guy and being from Dallas and Fort Worth area, you know, um, I think my, my earliest memory of somebody really recognizing me and saying, I love your show was at the hi-hat over there on Berry street. Oh yeah. Oh my God. And, uh, somebody sitting next to me goes, man, I dig your show. I don't remember what we were doing there, but we were there for some reason. Um, okay. So dispel to me a myth. And I've heard this, I, don't, I can't think of the word complaint, maybe it's just an observation, that reality TV shows aren't really reality. You're part of one. Were they reality? In truth, um, most of them are not. Most of them are made up, BS, staged. Uh, they have crews that come in off camera that put it all together, you know, in a lot of manufactured drama. And, and those things were the things that I didn't like about what inspired me to get into this for uh, in the first place. So my shop, we never invented drama. We sure we fought. You got six guys in a room trying to do something real fast. You know, tempers are going to flare. But I did not allow the cameras to capture that. And then we truly, really built the cars. They tried to get me to make cars faster by bringing in a crew. They wanted to bring in a crew at night to help make episodes faster. And I said. Myself and none of my guys are going to stand in front of something that we didn't build and take credit for. That's not our style. That's not what we do. And, uh, you know, they argued with me and I said, cancel the show then. I mean, we, I was probably one of the only guys that has ever really stuck to my guns all the way up to the highest echelon of the cable uh, company and gone, no, I'm going to do it my way. 
and you're you're not going to come. They were giving me, you know, towards after the first twenty or thirty shows, they were giving me some sizable money to to build the cars. Uh, as far as like this goes towards the car, and but then I saw them stylistically trying to come in and tell me what I was going to do. So I told them that I wouldn't take the money, and they were like, "What do you mean?" I said, "You're not going to give me money and then tell me what to do. So keep your money. I'm going to do what I want today." Richard, explain to me the difference between rebuilding a motorcycle and rebuilding a car. Because one thing I've consistently heard from guys who've got souped up or rebuilt motorcycles, they always break down. If if you they just break down, I don't hear that as much from guys who have souped up or rebuilt cars. There's you know there's really no difference, just two extra wheels. I mean, it, it's still That's extra parts though. A car's much bigger. This you got more room for screw up potential right you do you do and 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 a hot rod is inherently going to give you problems um you know it's going to have a dead battery it's going to have low on air tires you know or uh develop a problem it's it's just the nature of the beast and uh what have you but the big trick to it and even with a motorcycle is you got to drive you know a lot of people build something or get something built for themselves and then they look at it yeah, They're all proud of it, and you got to stretch its legs and run it through the paces, and sometimes it can take weeks or even a, a few months to work out all the micro little into you know little problems, and just you got to you got to do it all the way through until it's done. Uh, a lot of cars that we would do on the show would still be here a month and a half later because we're road testing and you know chasing down little bugs or you know little things that didn't work. Um, because we had to put them together so fast for the show, uh, and uh, what have you. Um, you're going to inherently miss something. Richard, did I read correctly that you did the Cannonball race many years ago? Uh, May of 2007. Okay, so I think that's one of those names and one of those races that people know by name, but they really don't know how it works. There, there's, there's a Cannonball. There's no structure. There's no structured body to the cannonball run. Uh, it's if you want to try it, you can go try it today. But it's you know, 34th Street, Manhattan to uh, the Redondo Beach Hotel, and um, it's 2,811 miles. To this day, it's the fastest route, not necessarily the best route, but that's the least amount of miles. Um, and uh, we did it in 31 hours and 59 minutes, and beat the previous record that had been set in 1979. Uh, so that record stood since 79 to 2007. Um, then our record stood for about another six or seven years, and now it's been broken quite a few times. Um, car Freeways have gotten better and bigger, and cars have uh, gotten more reliable and, and better gas mileage. I mean, we wasted 45 minutes getting gas, you know, during that run. Uh, so uh, I think one guy just did it in a rental Mustang by removing all the interior and filling it up with gas cans, and uh, never had to stop. Um, and uh, you know what have you? So we we're proud of that. I wouldn't do it again, uh, you know. But it was a cool thing to 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 do and to actually beat the record. I just did it on a dare. A buddy of mine said that we couldn't beat the record. And I was like, watch this. Is there a, what's the strategy behind it? Like you talked about the guy filling the car up with gas cans. But when you when you do something like that, other than the math, do you strategize it at all, or is it just all by feel and go? 
Uh, we had radar detectors and radar jammers and diffusers and, uh, you know, <laughs> and, um, you know, fake license plates. I mean, we had a bunch of stuff going on uh, when we did it. Um, one guy that just did it dressed himself as a cop car. <laughs> you know, uh, so uh, there's always some kind of kooky, crazy story out of uh, any of the guys that beat the record. Richard, Gas Monkey's been around NASCAR for a while. Now, that's not cheap. No, I know you know that. Being involved in sponsoring a NASCAR is expensive. I grew up a NASCAR fan. I have some, you know, current criticisms of the sport and the way it's being run. But as a car guy, NASCAR guy, what do you think about how that, the sport is these days? Do you like it or do you wish some, they'd make some changes and modifications? I think they need to make some changes and modifications. And it's gotten too expensive for the average household. Um, you know, you about as the consumer or the sponsor as the consumer, oh, really just gotten too expensive to go to the races and, and be there and be a part of it for the normal household. Plus, you know, on the sponsorship level, it is ridiculously expensive for, for what you get in return and what have you. I mean, I've done more with NHRA and drag racing than I did with NASCAR. And then, you know, we ran the, the Indy 500 you know, 100th anniversary, and we've got a monster truck out there and a rally cross team and a supercross team and stuff like that. But, uh, you know, it's, I, I probably won't do anything with NASCAR again because it really isn't worth it to me as a business. It's too much money and, and not enough return. You mentioned NHRA. I, I actually grew up in an NHRA fan. I was a Billy Meyer fan, Don Perdome, uh, Big Daddy Don Garlitz, all those guys. I grew up with all those guys' names. Um, I keep hearing different things about NHRA. You can tell me what's true or not. Is the sport in decent shape, Richard? It's it's gotten to be. It's more expensive to compete, uh, and uh, it, it realistically is the same cars. You know, whatever. If you go to the top fuel class, they're all running the same motors and the same area. It's luck of the draw. It's getting out of the gate and getting down. You know, point A to point B. Um, you know, I think that there could be some more fun in the sport. We put a lot of fun when we got into it. You know, team sponsors weren't down on the wall and freaking rallying out the crowd and running up and down the track and stuff. You know, we, we put a lot of fun into it. And uh, I know that some changes are coming. Uh, I'm not at liberty to talk about it, uh, but because of some of the, the relationships I have and some of the things that are coming down the pipe, uh, it's 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 gonna get there. It's just they're used to doing things the same way, mm -hmm. and a lot of these companies are finally realizing. I don't care if it's like Good Guys Custom Car Shows or NHRA or NASCAR, whatever. Change is inevitable now, and you can't just stay the same and do it because everybody you're getting fifteen twenty seconds of somebody's time on their phone, and uh, you're gonna have to make it fun, and you're gonna have to make it interactive, and you're gonna have to make gamify it in some way gamify that's interesting now you you got involved you mentioned it you got involved with something that money people will tell you consistently is the worst venture on the market that if you sink your money into this i'm not even talking about racing but if you sink your money into this thing you're an idiot you're going to lose your butt in six months and that's owning a restaurant i've never heard it's a good investment ever unless you own franchises and mcdonald's or whatever else it's nothing more than horror stories and people <laughs> telling you stories about employees robbing you blind, drinking the booze, eating the food, all of it. So what made you think, of all the stuff that you've invested in, 
why in God's name did you think, yeah, restaurants is a good idea? Now, it's worked, but why did you think it was a winner? Well, it's a natural progression. Uh, when you're hanging out in a hot rod shop or a motorcycle shop or whatever, you know, you're going to drink beer, you're going to eat burgers, and, you know, you want some music. And so it was always on my mind to build a restaurant vertical that I, I should have had by now, you know, 30, 40 restaurants. Uh, I built it to be the next House of Blues or Hard Rock Cafe or Planet Hollywood. Um, unfortunately, uh, the restaurant that we opened here, while it was massively successful um, for seven or for actually eight years, um, the horror stories that you mentioned were true, but they uh, they weren't the employees. They were the uh, partner. So um, didn't go over very well. Um, do you want to bring it back? Do you want to do the live music thing again, Richard? Oh, we absolutely are. Okay. Uh, I, I'm, uh, I'm, I've got, uh, um, plans to be open sometime within the next year. Um, I, I, uh, I had to shut that one down, uh, through the means of the court, uh, because of, uh, the business situation. Uh, but I was able to get it done and, uh, you know, there was, I had to take the last two years to kind of clean up some partnerships and gain you know, take the machete and cut some heads off and bring it all back in. So now I'm 100%, 100% owner of everything Gas Monkey. No trails, no nothing. And now we're kind of revamping. I took the time of COVID to go take down the the dummies that uh, I had in my circle and get rid of them. Got a couple more questions. I'll let you go. So you're a car guy, and I want you to explain this to me because I recently bought a car and everything I was going to buy did not have turnkey ignitions. Everything was buttons, right? It's a fob, it's a button. And it drove me crazy as a consumer because all I see, Richard, is something that is going to break and something that I'm going to have to repl replace at a pretty big cost at 100,000 miles. So all that being said, is all this technology in the car, has it made for a better car for the consumer or is it just serve the purposes for the profit margin of the auto manufacturers? Ah. I think that it's a better car for the consumer uh, and, and a lot more entertainment choices and, and things like that. Um, you know, the the technology of what's going on doesn't bother me because uh, I, like any other guy, you give me a Tesla in here and I'm going to break into the computer and I'm going to figure out how to make it faster and, and <laughs> what have you. You know, so it's just a different mousetrap. Now, I'm always going to be a combustion engine guy and uh, what have you, but you know, we're fixing to make an electric car here, uh, and it's going to turn some heads for sure. I'm not ready to let the cat out of the bag, but uh, my th my thoughts on on you know technology and electric cars and all that are we don't know what's going to be you know when there's 500 million lithium ion batteries sitting around in junkyards. Uh, we don't know what that's going to look like, and sadly enough, we're you and I aren't going to see that in our lifetime. But our kids and their kids are going to have to deal with it. And I think we've been sold a, a box of rocks with all this electric car stuff because it's just as bad on the environment, all this lithium ion battery crap and all the, and everything that it takes to build a regular combustion engine or a regular, uh, you know, electric car, they're the same worse for the environment, but that combustion engine can be completely recycled. We don't have anything to do with these big giant batteries we're putting in everything. And they're they're deadly deadly chemicals. And quite frankly, what does it do for the environment? Where do we get the electricity from? From burning coal. So you know, 
gasoline burns coal. I mean, what's the difference? It, it, you know, I think we've just been sold a bill of goods. Uh, that's really now hydrogen. That could be a game changer, but we're still a little far, far away from there. Far away. We're 50 years away from that. Well, they're able to generate hydrogen now uh, in bulk. So we'll see what happens. But the only reason we're that far away is because... Oh, I'm thinking, wait a minute. I'm thinking when you say hydrogen, I'm thinking of hydrogen, when I say 50 years, and I read about that, and I read about nuclear fusion, all this other stuff. It seems to me that we are decades away from that being available to the consumer to, to maybe be... It's, it's, because, it's because big business right now has investment in what they're doing. And they've got to pay that investment back before they go do something else. Uh, you know, so um, it's just the way the wheel goes around. But uh, if somebody, you know, if a smart guy came along and said, I'm not doing it that way, I'm going to do this, it can be done relatively quickly. Okay, here's another one I hear. Don't buy a new car because the new car depreciates 10% the second you drive it off the lot. Should we buy a new car or stick to used? I think 10% is uh, way too uh, small. I, I would tell you that it's going to depreciate 20, 25% uh, and, and even bigger percentages are the more expensive cars. Um, so, you know, I buy my cars used uh, almost all the time unless I'm buying a super high-end car. Um, and then I'll buy that brand new. But I would usually buy current year model with two or 3,000 miles on it. All right, last one. You mentioned this. Uh, you used the word vertical. I love that word. Uh, what else are you going to add to the Richard Rawlings garage, so to speak, in the future that we can look forward to? Well, uh, we're developing our own fast channel, uh, our own streamer. Uh, I've partnered with some uh, really intelligent uh, guys uh, from a private equity side of things, and we're starting a studio that's going to be pretty cool. Uh, we're going to build out uh, a lot of... Uh, automotive and motorcycle content. Uh, we've got uh, some gamifying options coming along. We're, we're also building uh, a new uh, platform for auctioning and uh, cars and classified ads and kind of a membership community thing that we expect to have many hundreds of thousands of members in, you know, very quickly. And uh, we're exploring uh, our options in the restaurant space uh, right now. Uh, we've got uh, plans for New York, uh, Orlando, well, Times Square, Orlando, Nashville, Dallas, Vegas. Uh, we're relaunching the tequila company. Um, and uh, I'm launching a uh, kind of a curated section of, uh, of apparel and accoutrements uh, under the name Super Rich and a Collective. So Super Rich Collective will be kind of my curated things that I'm into, that I like, that are more expensive than the normal t-shirt, but they're cool, you know, and, you know, they have a reason for being there. How the hell do you have time to do anything? Well, my kids are grown. And, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a serial entrepreneur. I, I, I just work. You know, that's all I really know. You give me 20 minutes by myself with nothing to do and I'll go crazy. <laughs> well, I really appreciate you making time for me today. Uh, it's a hell of a career that you've created. And it's a great story. Congratulations for all uh, on all of your success, and I look forward to what you're doing in the future for sure. Absolutely, you have a good one, man. Okay, thanks, Ricky. Take care.